As you all know, I use Anchor FM to record all of my podcasts. If you haven't heard about Anchor by Spotify, it's the easiest way to make a podcast with everything you need in one place. Anchor has all the tools that allows you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. And to top it off, you can distribute your podcast on listening platforms like Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and more. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place. And best of all, y'all, it's completely free. Free 99. Download the Anchor app or go to Anchor FM to get started. Hello, guys. This is your host, Dahlia J. I just wanted to say that this is a special episode of um, Black and Blooming due to the recent events with George Floyd and the Black Lives Matter movement. I know that this has been going on for a few weeks now. Um, and this is my first time speaking via my radio show, um, but I have been active on social media, reposting links and whatnot. I just wanted to say that I stand with the Black Lives Matter movement as myself, a Black woman. Um, and I also hear what you guys are saying about the media. And as a journalist, I see both sides. Um, in, in today's episode, I'm going to be interviewing um Two journalists that I know personally who are local journalists who have been reporting on the Black Lives Matter movement in Reno and Las Vegas and who've been there themselves going to the protest and recording to see um, up to dates and whatnot and seeing what's going on. And I just wanted to say that um, for all the bad media out there, there are a few good reporters. And I think that it's important for us to filter the news that we watch. Um, Some of those big name um, news places are bought and paid for by those who have money, and they're only going to show one side of the story. So I encourage everyone to filter the media that you watch, to be very um, cautious and skeptical whenever you read anything, an article, uh, when you watch a news story, and to always double, triple, and quadruple track check all of the facts. Um, I just want to take a brief moment of silence for all of the Black lives who have been lost in the past years um, that who are have become hashtags, unfortunately, and those who we don't even know about. There are so many people who have died at the hands of police that we don't even know about, who we haven't even heard of because it hasn't gained national attention. So I just want to take a quick moment of silence um, for all of those lives that have been lost. Um, Thank you. I really hope that during that time, you took some time to think about all these people, to pray for them, to just keep them in your minds and hearts. Um, This is emotional. Uh, Yeah. So with that being said, I'm going to go ahead and begin. Um, This is part one of my Black Lives Matter movement and the media um, 
it's going to at least be a two-part series. It may turn into a part three series, um, just in case you guys want to hear from someone who's not a journalist, who is skeptical of the media, who may have a lot of opinions, and, you know, who just maybe has questions and has things that they're concerned about when it comes to the media. So um, thank you guys. Stay tuned um, for this, the following episode. At the end of the episode, um, I will be listing different resources, places that you could donate to, petitions that you can sign, um, just a brief um, things that you can do to get involved. And if you look in the description of my podcast, whether you're on Spotify, Mixcloud, um, any of those platforms, you will be seeing some petitions that you can go sign and um, some places that you can donate to. Thank you. And we're going to go ahead and proceed with the episode. Hello, guys. This is your host, Dahlia J for Black and Blooming. Thank you guys for tuning in to yet another episode. Today, I have a guest co-host named Nico Columbit. He is actually a former professor of mine for one of my journalism classes. So I'm going to go ahead and give the floor to him so he can introduce himself and tell you guys a little bit more about him. Hi, my name is Nico Columbans, and I teach journalism at the University of Nevada, Reno. And I used to be an international journalist. I worked mostly in radio, and I worked in Southeast Asia, Brazil, Africa. And I covered many riots, many protests, many civil wars. So I've, I've experienced quite a bit as a journalist what we're experiencing now in the United States. Okay. Um... And are you currently working on any projects um, yourself? I know you have Our Town Reno, so um, can you tell us a little bit about that? So Our Town Reno is a, what I call a collective street reporting project. So we're open to volunteer uh, community contributions. And it's mainly a, a student newsroom, uh, which covers issues of homelessness, the affordable housing crisis, and from time to time, we also look into social justice issues. Now, during the summer, uh, I have fewer students working for me. Sometimes I don't have any students at all. And with everything going on, I thought it was important for uh, Our Town Reno to, to cover some of the protests going on in Reno. So I went out myself to uh, many of the rallies that took place recently here in Reno. Okay, so how many um, protests have you gone to, to, um, you know, write about, write stories for, just observe, get pictures, etc.? Protests uh, right now, recently? Is that what you're asking about? Yes. Yes, yeah, so I went to the uh, initial day on May 30th when they had the, the big uh, peaceful march and then the, the courthouse speeches in Reno, so I went to that. And then when I, I saw that it, it took a turn uh, later that day, I went back out to see uh, what was going on at, at City Hall as you had some of the protesters who were able to storm inside City Hall. And there was a, a, a very intense uh, police reaction with rubber bullets and tear gas. So I went to that. And then after that, there were uh, other protests. There were silent sit-ins at the, the Believe uh, City Plaza, which I went to a few times. There was a protest for uh, doctors. Uh, black female doctors led this protest uh, as part of the hashtag uh, white coats uh, in favor of Black Lives Matter. 
and more recently uh, there was also a, a protest which was a, a big kneeling rally again at the the Belief Plaza in Reno uh, this past weekend okay um so can you tell me a little bit what was it like being at the protests did you have any safety concerns I know you've done this plenty of times before but it being um you know it's a new era so were there any safety concerns with you going into it initially or how did you feel well I'm also a father so the uh, first time uh, I went to the peaceful march uh, I was actually with my five-month-old in a stroller and my 10-year-old and my 10-year-old was recording the audio and uh, I was taking pictures and soon after I arrived, I noticed, uh, you know, there was some tension, which was expected. There was, a, I think, a kid wearing a, a Stars and Stripes T-shirt and someone else in the crowd uh, asking the kid why he chose that T-shirt on that day. And then I also saw a, a sort of militiaman uh, dressed in fatigues uh, with a, a very high-level rifle. And that got me a little worried. So, you know, so I, I, I kind of went more to the side to take pictures uh, because I, I really uh, admire protesters and protests. And I, I've covered a lot as a journalist, but I, I always go as a journalist. That's always been my thing. Uh, I like to, to document these movements. And so I was there with, with my camera and my audio recorder. And uh, so that, that part of the protest, you know, I, I could really feel the anger uh, and I could, you know, I, I could sense there was tension, but it, it stayed calm until uh, the group went to the, the police station and started uh, spray painting at the police headquarters on 2nd Street. Uh, I went back out that night and I, I told my wife I was maybe going to take my 10-year-old uh, because we sometimes go rollerblading at night in Reno, but she thought that was a bad idea and she was probably right. So I went back out at night and I actually, uh, uh, I always park away. Uh, from disturbances you know I always think as a reporter it's good to have a, a safe car and a, a quick exit strategy in these situations so I, I parked kind of far away and I actually went uh, to City Hall on my rollerblades uh, which uh, I had done previously in, in other parts of the world in Paris uh, they have very uh, violent protests from time to time in Paris and I would use that technique of uh, rollerblades that has always worked for me really well uh, because you can really escape uh, any problems very quickly and you can also go in and out of situations. And so that, that, that's what I did for a while. Uh, there was a lot of tear gas. So I did get tear gassed. Uh, I did not get shot uh, by a rubber bullet, but there were rubber bullets being fired and those can be extremely dangerous if they hit your face or any uh, very vulnerable areas. So, uh, so it was a very uh, a tense situation for Reno. Uh, now in my uh, previous career, I did cover uh, civil wars uh, very tragically. I've had a lot of former colleagues and former journalist friends who were killed uh, as journalists. So this did not uh, compare to those situations for me. But for Reno, uh, I had never seen anything that intense in Reno. Um, so I see that you mentioned that you have reported on civil wars in the past. Um, while reporting on during the Black Lives Matter uh, march and justice for George Floyd, did it remind you of any other um, protests or other stories that you've covered in the past during your career? Uh, yes, I would say uh, there's a lot of uh, similarities to protests in the United States 
and around the world. Uh, I lived a lot of my life in uh, Washington, D.C., where uh, there's tons of rallies all the time. And as a journalist, I always uh, wanted to cover uh, those types of situations. So uh, different jobs I've had over my career, I was often the go-to reporter for rallies, for protests, uh, and, and similar uh, scenarios. So, and there is, I mean, every time it's different, every city is different, but there are a lot of similarities uh, as to how these uh, events unfold, as to how to, to stay as safe as possible as a journalist, uh, and as to how to, you know, treat the people protesting, how to deal with police. Uh, I see a lot of similarities. There's maybe more awareness right now among the, the larger population, but as a journalist who, who has done this in the past, I see a lot of similarities. Okay. What's the biggest similarity that you've noticed amongst all of this? Well, it's just that uh, you have people who are angry about something, you know, justifiably so. And, uh, you know, there's rhythms to protests, to rallies. Sometimes uh, uh, they will, you know, turn violent. And then there's reaction by the, the police forces. And, and that depends uh, from place to place. But there is a lot of logic to everything uh, going on. There's sort of a, a predictable pattern sometimes. And even when things get out of hand, you can kind of tell, as an experienced journalist, where, where they might be headed, uh, when it might get worse, uh, when it might you know, calm down. But it's important to, to, to have these protests, and I think it's important for, for journalists to cover them. What is different is obviously the, the social media aspect. Every, everybody is uh, covering uh, the, the protests themselves. You know, there's police have their own video cameras. Uh, police have their own infiltrators, which they've always had. You know, people posing as civilians also documenting the events. Uh, and so that hasn't changed, but the social media has changed. The amount of people who are actually covering it for themselves. And there's also... Uh, you know, maybe the distrust of media has really grown, especially in the United States, I would say over the last uh, 10 years, that has really grown, the distrust and uh, non-respect for, for journalists, which I understand, but it's a trend that has happened uh, where, where there is nothing sacred about the journalist, the reporter anymore. The journalist, the reporter is just as much a target, if not more so sometimes than others. The journalist is not seen as an elevated uh, uh, profession anymore. Uh, some people accuse journalists of, of being fake news. People are very divided about which journalists they trust, which journalists they don't trust. So that's something that it that is very different. Another thing is, you know, uh, the the idea of public space and you know how to deal with protesters. Now, I have not changed over my career how I do that, but there is an interesting conversation. Uh, going on right now about, you know, whether uh, protesters' faces should be blurred, etc. Mm -hmm. um, and I was actually going to ask you about that. What is your stance on that? I know um, I'm not going to mention her name um, for the sake of her privacy, but I did have a friend who recently made a statement in regards to blurring faces um, the publication was not in favor of blurring faces because they felt like um, it was 
a way of them not being impartial um, and being biased, but she felt it was a way to show that they care about the protesters' safety. So what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, so it's a very interesting conversation, uh, which we've never had uh, to this point, you know, with such intensity. And it, it's very similar to the, the safe spaces on, on campus conversation. Uh, so, you know, Journalist was built on this uh, First Amendment foundation in the United States and also on the fact that everybody can be a journalist in the United States. You don't need press credentials. Uh, and so people, you know, can post wherever they want. And anything that happens in the public space is, is fair game. So you are allowed legally to take pictures of anything that happens in a public space. So people who are in a public space have to know they're at a risk of uh, you know, having their picture taken, videos taken of them, because they are in the public space. Having said that, myself, uh, as a journalist, for example, I can tell you uh, other parts of the world where, where it can be sometimes much worse. Uh, parts of Africa, uh, I've noticed, I would notice other journalists would interview a, a protester, and then as soon as the journalist left, oftentimes a foreigner, the protester they had interviewed would immediately get arrested. So I would never, for example, interview a protest in front of security forces because I feel uh, they need to be protected in that way. So if I were to interview a protester in those situations in Africa, I would always go to a very discreet side alley to be able to do uh, my interview. Also, as a journalist, I always, you know, and, and this is just my preference, but I always focused on the, the message of the protest. And then if there was violence, I always focused on, you know, the most vulnerable uh, in that whole violence. So if there's a particular group that was being targeted, you know, I would focus on that group. If it was police, you know, with the real bullets or rubber bullets or tear gas, I would focus on that uh, part of what was going on. Uh, and I never really, I have to say in my career, focused on the the looting or fires of buildings i always focused on what i thought was the major violence going on and also uh, on the message of the protest so that's you know you could say you know i'm biased but i've never really believed uh, in uh, this sacred call to objectivity I, I think we all have our biases and i think uh, in this day and age there are ethics of journalism. There are laws, but I think uh, a journalist has to be a human being first and foremost. And uh, another part of my ethical code is uh, meaningful consent. Uh, if I interview someone and they're totally drunk or they've just been traumatized, I'm not sure that they actually gave me meaningful consent to be interviewed. So to me, that doesn't pass my threshold. So I have a, I have a certain threshold of uh, you know what I consider to be someone accepting <clears throat> to be documented by me as the journalist. And in protest situations, I like to uh, kind of take photos from the back of people's heads uh, when something uh, big is going on to, to maybe you know protect them. And maybe I won't win that uh, award-winning photograph because I don't have the full uh, person's face but maybe I'll feel better about myself. There's a lot of instances where journalists took award-winning photographs and then had trauma because of the blowback they received because other people felt they were putting someone that they documented in an extremely 
vulnerable position because of their work. And I think that the journalist is a very powerful person. The journalist does have power because they have access to whatever website news organization they're working for. And I think as a human being, you always have to consider the power you're wielding and the effects of that power. So I think this conversation is very important. I understand the other side, but I just gave you my side, which is maybe a little long winded, but I, I want it to be nuanced. Okay. I appreciate your honesty and in going into depth about um, what you believe as far as protecting um, the people that you are interviewing as a journalist. That being said, when it comes to the distrust of the media, I know you said that you tend to focus on the main message of the protest and the march and why they are there. And if there's violence, you tend to, you know, focus on that and how it started. Do you personally believe that distrust from the media, especially during this time, has come because there are some news organizations who are mainly focusing on destruction of property and looting and whatnot instead of the main message behind these protests and marches? Well, I, I think it's more because it's it's kind of, it's, it's becoming more chaotic and uh, our media diets, you know, are becoming more diversified, which is a good thing, but it's going through a, a kind of a, a new period where we have access to so much information. We don't know what's real, what's fake. Uh, you know, there's a, a lot of con artists out there. Uh, there's different media organizations, but I have no problem with different media doing different types of stories. I think uh, that's important. And I think uh, social media journalists are important as well. I think the more voices, the better. But we are going through a period where people, uh, you know, so a lot of people have a hard time differentiating between, you know, quality and what might be fabricated uh, news. So I don't have a problem with the, the bigger diversity of voices we're getting through our media diets. I just think the problem is that, you know, maybe people need to uh, be a little bit smarter about how they are consuming uh, information. And I don't know how you go about that, but I think that this diversification, even though it has its dangers, I think is actually a, a good thing. And uh, there's all these uh, old timers who really defend the old media model. But uh, I don't think that was a, I think that was even a worse model because you had a very centrist pro-market model that relied on advertisements and tv news was was basically old white men you know were they really uh representing uh the diversity of this country it was mostly these old sort of middle of the road white men presenting the news and that is what was called factual but was it really factual i don't believe it was like if you go back and look at uh, uh old media reels you can just rip into it and find a lot of problems with what they were doing as well. So I feel every journalist is their duty throughout their life to just try to do better and better work. The same goes for media organizations to keep doing better and better work as society progresses. And then there's the problem of, you know, these, these social media networks, which seem to disseminate sort of the more provocative, controversial content the most. So because they're also trying to get clicks, everybody's trying to get clicks, everybody's trying to get likes. So it kind of feeds into some more extreme news. I don't see that as necessarily a problem. I think the problem is more 
you know, that people don't always recognize what is actual good work and what is totally fabricated. And what is also, what can lead to, to more hate just for the purpose of leading to more hate. That is extremely problematic. Um, so to pick up where we left off, I was asking you about what you noticed as far as the animosity and lack of respect towards journalists um, and the challenges that you face personally in this profession. So I noticed that in the United States, uh, the mood really changed uh, after Barack Obama's election and in 2009 and how the uh, the Tea Party movement started and there was this Tea Party movement uh, was had a lot of animosity uh, towards journalists and uh, a lot of anger and not trusting your questions or what you would do uh, uh, with the interviews. So it, it started back then and I think in the last 10, you know, 12 years, it's really escalated uh, in the United States. Now, I, I don't really see that as a problem. I'm a combative person. I don't think the world is perfect. Uh, I think part of our jobs as journalists is to, you know, try to help make the world a better place. But I don't expect everything to, to be rosy. And I don't as expect any uh, special treatment for me uh, as a journalist. I do You want the protection of the law to be able to be a journalist. But beyond that... You know, I'm not expecting any uh, special treatment uh, just because I am a journalist. And I think the special treatment can actually be bad for journalists because then you're seen as other and you're seen as elitist. Uh, now, in my career as a journalist, you know, I've been shot at, I've been detained, I've been arrested. Uh, I've had colleagues uh, killed uh, a few hours after I was with them. Uh, so I've seen a lot of horrible uh, things happen to journalists. I've experienced a lot of difficult situations, and uh, sadly, it is it is part of the profession because you are going into hot spots. You are going into moments of extreme tension, and so you also have to survive as a person and also document what's going on. So right now, some journalists are experiencing this for the first time. Uh, there are some former students of mine who uh, were covering uh, these types of instances for the first time in their career. And you learn a lot every time you're out there. But I always tell students, you have to know where your line is. You do not cross the line that you don't feel comfortable crossing. So know what your own boundaries are and don't feel bad if you don't cross those boundaries. You're more important as a storyteller, alive and healthy than anything else. So do not cross any line you don't feel comfortable okay. crossing. Um, and this is kind of veering away from the distrust of the media, but I wanted to ask you, what was your approach to writing this story about the protest um, and why it was happening, the purpose as a white male? Do you feel like that had any effect on your experience or any effect on how you wrote this story Uh, that, that, that's a very good good question. And uh, I actually became a journalist because as a kid, I would watch uh, 
you know, PBS documentaries about the civil rights movement. So that's actually what got me into journalism uh, was these kinds of uh, moments. And as I said, uh, I did work uh, a lot uh, of my time in other countries, in other cultures. Uh, so I do have experience uh, reporting about, you know, cultures other than my own, you know, specific distinct culture. And I believe that everybody kind of has their subset distinct uh, culture. Uh, I've also reported in on protests in France, uh, where I'm from, uh, and the distrust even, you know, I was talking about the distrust from more the right wing, the Tea Party movement, but now that I'm thinking about it, uh, in the late, this was a long time ago, in the late 1990s, there were all these anti-globalization uh, protests against what was called the World Trade Organization, which kind of started in Seattle and moved to uh, Washington, D.C. It was kind of had an Antifa vibe to them. And there was a lot of distrust of me because they did not know me with my camera. They had never seen me at their meetings. And they were wondering, you know, how was I at the protest taking photos? So there was distrust back then as well that I might be a, a, an infiltrator or someone, you know, spying on them. So there's always been this distrust uh, of journalists covering protests, whatever the movement uh, when you're a journalist, if you're not a part of that movement, you're actually always a distinct person from that movement because you're not uh, within that movement. So personally, I have not really seen any protests that I've covered. I, I, I feel there's been a lot of similarities where, you know, I feel like a, a journalist and I feel like the message of the protest uh, is important. Now, in the uh, for these latest protests in Reno, the the form that I've gone the most to is sort of the the mini documentary web style of video, uh, where it's more uh, the speeches, hearing people from themselves, seeing the sights and sounds, and editing that into one, two minutes, or four minute videos, but not having any writing by myself beyond when this happened, what was going on and then going into the video with the sights, sounds, speeches. So that's the approach I've, I've taken with these latest protests. And I've always uh, liked doing the, the mini doc uh, style, but I don't necessarily uh, think of myself that much uh, when I'm uh, documenting. Uh, that's why I got into journalism. I'm very interested in other people and what other people are saying. And so I'm not really thinking of myself, but I know that I have my own perceptions, biases, subjectivity. I, I, I am very well aware of that, but I think every other journalist has that. And on this topic with my wife, we actually uh, made a film about all black towns in Oklahoma. Uh, my wife is from Oklahoma, but she's not black. And some people might say, you know, uh, that's not staying in your own lane and that you should stay in your own lane. Uh, so that's an interesting conversation to have. But our movie was very well liked by uh, the associations uh, which promote uh, all black towns in Oklahoma. And as recently as yesterday, they had this big Zoom conference where, 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 they, where they talked about uh, the film a lot and they told participants to, to go watch the film. So I understand all these conversations, but I still believe uh, 
that you know people can document, can write stories about groups that are not their own group. I I, I still believe in the value of that, and I understand the conversations, and I I it's important that there be more diversity in who tells stories, and it's important for people to tell their own stories. But I still think it's interesting for people to tell other people's stories as well. I think both、uh, can be extremely valuable.、Um, I completely agree with you. I do think personally that it's important to not only see the world from your perspective and your own eye, but to see it from other people's points of view. And I think that the best way to do that as a journalist is to go out there and seek other people. Who are different from what you know and what you're comfortable with, and allow them to tell you their story. Right, and sometimes,、uh, obviously, people will discuss differently the issue when they don't know you well, or if they feel there's distance between you and them, they will present the issue differently. But that is interesting as well, and, and so I often say, you know, reporting is often recording the distance between. The reporter and the one being reported upon, and you sometimes don't want that distance to be too close, too far. But I, I feel all distances are valuable. But I do not believe, you know, in、um, hate-driven journalism. And just as a side question, do you? I know you said that you were inspired to become a journalist because you saw the documentaries on the civil rights movements.、Um, would you consider yourself an ally of the black community? So、uh, that I have less, you know, expertise on、uh, the words people use, you know, ally. I don't know. You know, you can look at my body of work and judge for yourself. You know what I've done a, as a reporter.、Uh, I I did uh, uh, one of my first documentaries was、uh, picked. Uh, by the Congressional Black Caucus in Washington D.C., they have a very prestigious festival they do every year, and they only pick three or four documentaries. And they picked one that I did,、uh, which they they really liked, and it was about a young black teenager who who went to to prison very young, and who was then in supermax prisons until he was exactly my age. And we were from very close neighborhoods in the Washington D.C. area, and I, I, I made that film. And actually, I, I never mentioned the crimes he committed in the film,、uh, and, and people thought I had done a, a very interesting treatment、uh, of that film because I was focusing on his reentry process and all the good things he was doing in the community、uh, to help others, rather than focusing on what got him into prison in the first place. So. You know, words like ally are fine,、uh, but you know maybe I'm I'm older, you know, so maybe you know I'm not used to these kinds of words yet. But yeah,、uh, ally, I'm ally for people, you know, who believe in humanity, who believe in justice, who believe in progress. I'm ally to anyone like that, and of course I'm ally to all races. You know, I'm allied to to everyone. I, I believe in in total equality, and and that's one thing people say about me is that, you know, I believe in e- equality, and I will interview someone who's down and out the same way, as you know, one of the most 
rich and powerful people on this planet. I will interview them and give them the same exact respect. Oftentimes I will actually give the person who's a little bit more, you know, down and out, struggling, dealing with injustices with more respect than the powerful person. Because the powerful person must be taken to account because they have more responsibility for everything that's going on. I see on what in you're saying. I think, um, Does that make well, sense? I know I as for my generation, when we do say ally, we just mean people that are for the equal and betterment um, of society as a whole. And specifically during these times, as a member of the black community, when we do say ally, we just want everyone to know that. You know, our lives matter just as much as anyone else's and that by being an ally, we agree to support each other. When something happens to another um, community in the future, we agree to support them in the same way that they've supported us just because we do believe in equality all around. Um, I, well, right. I personally would say that you're doing a pretty uh, good job of supporting already, um, itself. by supporting it's, you know, you're putting yourself on the front lines, you're reporting, um, on what's going on. You're showing multiple different sides. You're focusing on the main message of the protest and not getting too caught up and tied up into whether or not something was looted or whether or not something was set on fire, you're staying focused on the main message. I think just showcasing and broadcasting different stories of different people from walks of life um, within the black community is definitely what I feel. Um, and many of my friends would say is allyship. Okay. And see, because see, I'm originally uh, from France and I was educated in the French system. And you know, France went through the World War II and the word ally is very much in that sort of militaristic context of these people are our war allies. Uh, and, and so, you know, it's not a word that is from my own generation for these uh, purposes. So it's very good to, to hear from you. Uh, how you define it, how you elaborate upon it. So that that's very uh, useful for me. And as a uh, an instructor of journalism, I also learn a lot from my students because I, I, I feel like generations move on and I feel these conversations are important intergenerational as well. Uh, as you said, the, the conversation about uh, protesters' faces, uh, you know, not being exposed, I feel that's an important intergenerational conversation to have as well, because, you know, nothing is set in stone, you know, things evolve, society evolves. And so I think it's important for older journalists to listen to younger journalists and to be educated by them as well. And that we both, all generations, oh, no educate themselves. I appreciate to, to um, hearing, you know, what so it meant back for, in your time versus what it is now, because I definitely think that that helps give my generation an understanding of why some things that we say without explaining it or giving context may have a totally different meaning to the person that we're talking to, because back in you know, the 90s or, you know, back in their time when they were our age, it meant something completely different. So I think that it's important, like you said, to just learn from each other and to have patience in order to explain and, you know, hear one another out.
Um, so that was basically all of the questions that I have for you today. Um, do you have any final comments on the matter? No, but I think uh, these are very important times and uh, we've been through, uh, we're still going through the, the COVID-19 pandemic and I think uh, a lot of people had uh, different plans canceled so they had more time uh, to look into uh, social justice, uh, police racism, racism issues and so they had, you know, maybe more time to uh, invest themselves in some of these protests and that the, the journalists uh, were, were really... Uh, covering these protests as well and we're continuing to cover them we're seeing a lot going on in in seattle right now we're seeing reforms in in minneapolis so i feel as journalists it's important you know to to keep on this story to to hold the powers that be accountable and also to not just project nationally it's it's just a minneapolis problem it's just another place problem we also have to think locally, and that's why I, I try to coordinate the uh, Art Town Reno website. And we've been doing uh, some coverage on Micaiah Lee, uh, who uh, was killed by Sparks Police in January 2020. And the body cam video and the investigation have yet to be released. Uh, so uh, I've been doing stories, you know, uh, wondering where's the transparency on this? Because I think it's, it's important to always bring it back locally because without any local progress, local solutions, local reporting, uh, we're not going to, we're not going to make any progress. We're just going to, you know, hold it to, uh, bigger powers, the federal power, uh, different capital cities to decide, but we also I think have that's to a very good point. You got to start at home protesters first and as reporters as well. So, yes, because sometimes I see some statements uh, from, you know, student leaders, from faculty members. They don't bring it home. You know, where's the comment about UNRPD if you're talking about UNR? Let's talk about UNRPD. Uh, if you're talking about police racism and you make a statement, let's talk about what's happening. Oh, no, locally. of course. I Thank you for important. taking the time out of your day I'm to allow me to interview you. Really um, so, so guys, um, I hope that you enjoyed this episode of Black and Blooming. You can check out um, some of Nico's work on OurTownReno.com. Um, yeah. Is there any other social medias that you would like to promote on here? So Art Town Reno is also on Instagram, and it's called Biggest Little Streets. And we also have a podcast called uh, Biggest Little Streets. And you can find the the film I mentioned uh, on uh, YouTube. It's called Out for Good with Eddie Ellis, who's doing amazing work out of Washington, D.C. And I did a, a short uh, documentary about him. And uh, thank you for having me on the show. Okay, thank you. Hello guys, thank you for staying until the very end to hear what places that I have for you guys to donate and petitions to sign. So we do have the official GoFundMe for Rayshard Brooks, um, who was also killed unjustly by police. We have the Combahee Fund, which is a fund that is going to help homeless black women. And we also have the Vegas Freedom Fund, which is basically a bail fund for those individuals who cannot afford bail for themselves here in Las Vegas. 
Uh, we also have a number of petitions to sign at the bottom. We have Justice for Bree, Justice for Rayshard, and Robert Fuller, among many others. So please go ahead and head into the description of today's podcast <clears throat> or radio show um, and just do your research, click on the links, read about the cases, and sign. Um, the only way we're going to get through this and make a change is if we all stick together. So thank you guys again so, so much, and I hope you have a blessed week.